You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Jessica Westhafer. Jessica, thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Jessica, I want to congratulate you on your show, Somewhere That's Green, that's at uh, Vito Schnabel Gallery right now. Um, so, so to begin with, uh, we're talking about the, the, this show that is titled Somewhere That's Green, and, uh, and these, are, these are all really large canvases. It was a really cool show. So, so to just jump right into it, um, let's talk about what's happening in some of these, because these are all sort of stories, right? These all reference childhood in, in some way. Yeah, um, so they're they're really referential to childhood. I think specifically, like there's like a middle school vibe that I get from the show, um, and then the title "Somewhere That's Green" kind of referential to my home in Arkansas where I grew up, um, among some other things. But there's like a playful quality and a little bit of a tragic quality that I think is like dominant in childhood throughout the the entire show. So let's talk about about some of these because they're yeah they're yeah, they're, they're playful and I guess kind of haunting in, in some ways. One of the canvases that really stuck out to me, um, partly because of its shape, but, but it's just a great canvas too, is Always and Forever. And of course, this is Pinocchio, but um, but really, really big. It's like four by ten almost, right? This is a, a huge canvas. Um, in one way, this seems direct and straightforward, but it's, but it's unusual in a lot of ways, I think. For one, the size of it also... The composition is also left to right, which is which is kind of interesting. You know, all portraits seem everything seems to go right to left, doesn't it? Mm, I yeah, know, I, I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about this one? This this is the one that made me smile the most. That oh. I recognize <laughs> immediately, of course. Um, but yeah, but I suppose it has a, a number of meanings to it, right? It's, it's we think of it as as the liar, Pinocchio, right? Yeah, that's true. So um, I don't know what it was exactly. I guess I have these, like, Pinocchio figurines kind of around my apartment. Um, last time I went to Rome, I, I collected from this from this really great shop called Bartolucci when I was over there. Um, and then, funny enough, like, all these Pinocchio movies are coming around, around the same time. But I think for me, I kept thinking back to this um, Jim Dine sculpture that I had seen um, back in Arkansas, and the story of Pinocchio and the idea of, like, this imperfect father and imperfect child and kind of the trials and tribulations that they both undergo. And then when you think of Pinocchio, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the lie and how his nose grows. It's like something that instantly is a tell. And just to take that idea formally and to um, expand upon it into a painting. So the idea was to, to have the nose stretch over the entire canvas. And maybe it was a little um, depressing, but I thought the title, like, Always and Forever, like, the, the lies we tell ourselves, the lies we tell others. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of, like, yeah. a little bit of the context behind the work. Yeah, I really like that. And, um, and and this is oil on canvas, right? That that one had... Um, you know, the, the surface of it was really cool. It almost looked like encaustic, not not quite, of course, but it almost looked looked wet the way it was painted, the the doll's face. But but this is this is oil and watercolor. Like, what what is the medium exactly? 
Oh, yeah. No, so there's this really great manufacturer um, named Robert Doak in Brooklyn, and he creates these emulsified gesso surfaces. And so I'm able to work with watercolor first, which is the, the green background. And there's such, like, beautiful, like, inconsistencies in that paint. It's not easily controlled. And then the Pinocchio figure is built up with, like, the impasto of the oil paint. So he really comes forward from that green background. So that's interesting. Is is Robert Doe, that's a paint company, or is he, he makes medium, or, or what is that exactly? I haven't heard of, of that. He's uh, the best kept secret, I feel like. He's been around for a very long time. Uh, I think many artists kind of source from him, but he's like an independent supplier who makes canvases and pigments and binders. Um, kind of my, my favorite place to order from, but he was telling me about this watercolor surface that he has, and I tested it out, and I instantly fell in love with it. So I think some of the first two paintings were just on oil-primed linen, and then I kind of switched over and started using watercolor as this beginning to the oil paintings um, as a way to kind of sketch things out and to kind of have, like, a little bit more looseness um, in the background, something that I couldn't control. And it's so interesting. So to talk about another painting, um, Springtime Furby, uh, that's also using some of these techniques, right? That's, that's oil, the watercolor you're talking about, but also oil stick. Those are layers, essentially, then? Yeah, so he's, he's kind of built up the same way. So he's got, like, this watercolor background and moments of the hair, also watercolor. And then he's really thick and chunky and kind of grotesque with, like, the oil paints built up on top. And I kept thinking about, you know, how much I wanted a Furby when I was a young child and, and how creepy they were and how my family were like, they were pretty religious people. They were like, no, you cannot have those. Those are satanic. They're weird. They come on at night and they speak to you. And so I kind of wanted to embody that in this painting. this like immortalized like childhood toy that's just like ominous. Well, it's so, it's so different. It's such a different feeling from that. I mean, it, it is like the Pinocchio, um, a kind of uh, that, that similar memory, but it's also, um, yeah, it's something, something much different about it, of course, because this is, a, this is also a portrait of a, of a toy that we know and love. But you're saying, um, what's, what's the significance to you? That there is, um, uh, it, you know, it's, it's at once friendly and, and, and cozy, but is there, is there another edge to it? I mean, to me, yeah, I, I suppose it could be scary or, or something else? Or, or how do you see the other side to it? Is, is there two sides to that? I think so. I think with almost well, quite a few of the images in the show, there seems to be like a balance of, I don't want to say good and bad, but a little bit of levity and a little bit of darkness. So even the Pinocchio, it, you know, first glance, it might be like charming and heartwarming. And you think of the Disney story, but then as you unravel maybe the title um, you can come up with, like, the idea of a lie and how that feels. Um, and the Furby's in the same way where it, it's, you know, kind of this really popular item that every girl wanted to have um, in, like, the early 90s. But at the same time, they're kind of horrifying to look at. They're pretty creepy. They've got these giant mechanical eyes, and they speak to you. And there was, like, a lot of... Um, talk about how unsettling they were when they came out also like some parents like really took a stance on if you could have one of these toys or if you shouldn't um you know same conversations about like Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon I guess 
Right. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Why things have that kind of um, you know kind of split with with, with parents like there's like there's something wrong with it. Um, there's there's others that of course are from something completely different. There was one uh, called Seventh Period Science Class, which is of course a, a dissected frog. Right. That's for me the most difficult <laughs> one to look at. Yeah, it's kind of gross. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, that's okay. I mean, I mean that's, that also has that memory, right? I've been there. I've dissected a frog. I try not to think that I did. <laughs> but, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's super visceral. Um, I feel like there's some darker parts of this show that are a little bit more hidden, and this one just isn't. It's kind of out there. Um, and some of these are based off of personal memories, and sometimes they're images that I find striking that I just want to paint and then a narrative kind of comes as I'm working on it. And uh, I was actually visiting the Natural History Museum, and I saw this beautiful display of, like, a gutted frog, and it was showing, like, the reproductive um, organs inside. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to paint this. (laughs) It was so beautiful. And I thought it looked like a deposition almost. It looked so beautifully tragic. And then at around the same time, I I watched a lot of film, and I was watching E.T. at home, and that great scene where Elliot frees all the frogs in the class, and they're just like, it feels like biblical in a way. And so um, when I saw the, the frog at the Natural History Museum, I was like, oh, this, this is so suiting. Like, I have this memory of, like, being in middle school and having to dissect a frog with another boy in class, and he refused to dissect it. He just was so disgusted by it. And I was like, give it to me. <laughs> and I really got invested into it. So I don't know, I thought it'd be like a fun image to paint and everyone might have their own associations to it. Something that's kind of like tragic and grotesque or something that's kind of beautiful. Um, but it is a little sad. Yeah, I, I like that. There's, um, and yeah, I mean, these are, these are different kinds of paintings drawn in different ways. There's another one called the Broken and Bleeding Hearts, which is also coming at, at this idea from a different angle, right? The the bleeding hearts are, as I understand, are flowers, right? But this is a reference that isn't as nearly as, or to me, isn't as kind of pop as some of the rest, right? This isn't um, this isn't read the same way as the other paintings, is it? I think it's a little bit more sentimental than the rest of the paintings. Um, it was the first painting out of the show, so it's interesting to see how things kind of like changed um, as the work was being made, but um, I I think it was mostly about home, and so I am originally from Arkansas, and thinking back to, like, my time there and the bleeding hearts, so that, yeah, they're this type of flower. Um, They're really intricate and beautiful, and my father used to grow them in our yard, and I'd kind of, like, sit by them and pick them and pull them apart as a kid, and they just kept coming back to mind of things that I missed, like just green in general. I miss green after living in New York. Um, (laughs) But I wanted the bleeding hearts to kind of um, formally create this heart shape on the canvas as well. And then there's these like raindrops falling that are kind of enlarged, almost like a honey, I shrunk the kids moment. And you're not really sure if they're raindrops or if they're teardrops. So this one is just a little bit more, a little bit more sentimental, I'd say, than the rest. And there's um, a few others that I that I'd love to talk a little bit about because these are all 
like so different. The way their approach is so different. Um, bubble wand is uh, oil and watercolor, but there's also glass on there, right? This is the most abstract one in some in some ways. Of course, I I know it and can and can read this. Uh, that kind of wand is so familiar, but this one is also a slightly different medium, isn't it? By using glass as well. Yeah, so um, I'm really interested in surface and painting and tactility, and um, I hope people can get a chance to see it in person and how things differ than a photo online or on Instagram, but the sand actually has um, broken glass in it to kind of replicate like the feeling of sand, and then um, it's built up with the watercolor and the oil stick and the heavy impasto on the wand itself to kind of feel like the grooves of that wand. Um, I guess I, I think a lot about like what a material feels like if I was holding it in my hand and then how I would paint that. Um, but this one is the most abstract, and there's not really a clear narrative to it. It was mostly about the idea of something being larger than you and that feeling you have um, as a child and probably throughout almost, you know, your entire life, but zooming in to, like, the bubble wand and, like, looking through it and kind of seeing, like, how many circles I could push into a composition. But, um, you know, kind of the the premise of the bubble wand image. Yeah, I like that. And and since we're we're talking about all of them, there's there's one more, um, too soon or or more, but too soon, which is another, you know, these these are really giant canvases, right, almost six by eight feet. Uh, and, and this one is of, of snowmen melting, right, which is sort of perfect for this moment. We're talking on December 20th in 2022. <laughs> um, and this is this is also the same medium. There's no glass in this one. Uh, but this one is, is, is what I imagine, right? This is the, the story of a snowman melting, the, you know, the sadness of it, but also the Right, the sentimental quality of that, I suppose. Oh yeah, definitely. I think they're all kind of big. I'm I'm a short girl, five one, so I like to feel like I'm getting my exercise when I go to the studio to paint. But um, the snowmen, I wanted them to be almost like the size of a figure or like life size. Um, so, I, but I had to deal with the constraints of the space I was working with as well. But they are supposed to be kind of like these placeholders for figures that are slowly melting away, and when I think of snowmen, I think I have, like, fond memories of them, but at the same time, it's always depressing to watch them melt, and I think back to those, like, weird Campbell Soup commercials from, like, the late 80s um, of, like, the snowman melting and how depressing that is, and so these are, like, supposed to be symbolic of two figures kind of, like, being slowly chipped away or melting and, and not being ready for that time to, like, leave yet. Now, thanks so much for talking about these. I mean, you, you you mentioned you know Arkansas, of course, where you're where you're from, and some of these are are also rooted in in ways maybe have references that I don't understand um, entirely. These are these are images we've all grown up with, but um, but but you also had a more um, a strict religious upbringing, right, within the Jehovah's Witness community. Yeah, I did. Um... So my, uh, yeah, I, we moved to Arkansas when I was really young, about six years old, and um, my family converted to Jehovah's Witnesses, so I was raised within it. Um, and then I left that organi- organization when I was about 17, 18, like my senior year of high school, and um, 
really have no contact with my family anymore. So I feel like there's always this kind of like resilience in the work and this domestic domestic kind of like attention and love and sentiment and longing for like the past and childhood. Um, But at the same time, they're, they're kind of sad images as well. But yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about Jehovah's Witness other than, you know, I don't know, my mother talking to people that would come to the door and talk when <laughs> I was a kid. Um, but does it give you a particular view on visual culture? I mean, I, I, I imagine that, yeah, that, that can be, um, I, I don't know how Jehovah's Witness views creativity or, or you know, children being playful, but, but is there something that kind of, Makes a makes a mark in terms of being an artist and and expressing yourself uh, in, in this way because that sounds like such a powerful connection, right? To to leave that, but also I imagine that was kind of um, a powerful fold to be in or to be taught by or to be influenced by, even if you don't want to be, right? No, definitely. It's definitely um, a really restrictive religion. So there were no holidays or birthdays. Um, or, or like I couldn't, my brother and I couldn't play sports growing up. It was very much like you can only associate with others who are Jehovah's Witnesses. So I think as a child, it made you really introspective. And a lot of the times I was like painting and drawing in my room and my family really encouraged that as well. Um, so I guess like it comes out of like a solitariness, but it gave me a lot of freedom in a way too to express myself when I couldn't um, as a woman in that organization as well. So I don't know. It's always been this form of therapy for me, and it, it honestly feels like how I escaped it. Thanks so much for talking to me about this, Jessica. It's, it's a beautiful show. I, I, I want to ask you one more question before we go, um, which is a little off topic, but what are you reading at the moment? I'm always curious. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, well, I'm, I listen to audiobooks in the studio. So right now on audiobook, I have Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I have uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone going. <laughs> and then at home, um, I'm reading just some art interviews, so like Robert Storr's interviews on art, and um, Barry Schwabsky's, I think it's The Observer Effect, just a collection of essays. So a couple things. Thanks for sharing that with me, Jessica. And Jessica, I want to... I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. Congratulations on your show. The listeners can, of course, go see it right now if they're hearing it now. It's up till January 7th in 2023. And um, I want to wish you a happy holiday, too, of course. And, again, thanks so much for, for being with me today. Oh, thank you, and happy holidays to you, too. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>